I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome, everyone, to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the July 25, 2022 issue, Season 2, Episode 10. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect on how all this new information ties in with everything we've come to learn in the past, and we'll think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a potpourri of topics, And this week, I'll address six recent hair research studies in the past month or two. I'm going to summarize these six studies in just a moment, but I'd like you to imagine today that you have six patients in the clinic. You have Brian and Kyle. Brian is in room one with his 16-year-old son, Kyle. Kyle has started oral minoxidil and is experiencing nausea. Dad wants to know, can oral minoxidil cause nausea? In room two, we have Sandy. Sandy has been given hair fibers to camouflage her hair loss by her hair stylist. And she brings in a bottle of fibers to show you today. She wants to know, do patients like using these hair fibers? Can they irritate the scalp? And why haven't any specialists recommended these fibers in the past? In room three, we have Daria. Daria has lichen planopilaris. She's done well with hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil. She's hoping to have a second child. And she wants to know, is hydroxychloroquine safe during pregnancy and will it harm her baby in any way? In room four, we have Gathy. Gathy has multiple sclerosis and has been using teriflunamide for 16 weeks. Lately, he's been getting hair shedding. He wants to know, does teriflunamide cause hair loss, and is this shedding temporary, and is he going to need to change his multiple sclerosis medication? Susie is in room five. She's fed up with fragrances and preservatives in the shampoo she's using, and she wants to know, how can she make a natural shampoo herself, and what sort of recipe do you have for her? And finally, in room six, we have Mark. Mark stepped out of the room to have a smoke, but he's 22 and he started graying at 19. He's really bothered by his gray hair. None of his friends have gray hair. And he wants to know what blood tests can you order that will constitute a thorough workup for his early graying. 
We're going to talk about six wonderful studies which have been published in the last month or two. We'll start off with a study of oral minoxidil in adolescence, a study in July 2022 in the JAD, a study of 192 adolescents aged 13 to 18, hypertrichosis was seen in 11.4%, and we'll take a look at some of the other side effects. Then we'll look at an interesting study looking at patient satisfaction with hair fibers. These hair fibers are quite popular nowadays, but they have not been recognized and received by all hair specialists and people who address hair loss. I think they are generally pretty safe and can be quite helpful. We'll take a look at a study of hair fibers in the International Journal of Trichology, a study of 20 men and 20 women. Satisfaction was pretty good with the use of hair fibers and 2.5% of patients had scalp irritation. Then we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy. I think it's really important for hair specialists to understand some of the data about hydroxychloroquine or plaquenil in pregnancy. We'll take a look at a study by Reynolds in rheumatology in June 2022. A study of 284 live births, 52.7% of births being mums taking hydroxychloroquine, 30.4% being those receiving azathioprine or imuran. There was no difference between those groups in the frequency of congenital malformations or intrauterine growth restriction in babies. We'll look at this important data and the generally good safety of hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy but we'll take a look at a very important study by Hubrix of women using hydroxychloroquine, which suggested that mm, maybe it's not quite as safe as we all think, but generally it's pretty safe. Then we'll take a look at hair loss with some multiple sclerosis disease-modifying therapies. You know, medicine's moving along quite quickly in various fields, and the number of disease-modifying therapies in multiple sclerosis is pretty encouraging over the last decade. We'll take a look at a study by Porwal in June 2022 issue of the Journal of Central Nervous System Diseases showing an 18-fold increased risk of hair loss with teriflunamide in females and a 25-fold increased risk in males. Then we'll move on to a study by Zhang and um, in Dermatitis in June 2022. A very nice study looking at do-it-yourself hair care products. Is it possible for us to make shampoos, conditioners, hairsprays, hair gels, hair mousse at home that are relatively devoid of fragrances, preservatives? Well, it is. And we'll take a look at a really nice report in Dermatitis which summarizes some of this data. And I think it's a really nice report. Patients have taught me over the years how to make shampoos and conditioners. I really didn't know much about what Castile soap is prior to beginning my practice, but certainly I know it very well now. And we'll take a look at some do-it-yourself shampoos, conditioners, and other products. I think it's a valuable report. And the fact that this is put out there by a very well-respected dermatologist specializing in allergic contact dermatitis, Dr. Warshaw. I think this gives a lot of credit to attempting some of these products at home for patients that are interested. 
And finally, we'll, we'll move on to a study of early graying or premature graying of hair, PGH, a study by Das and colleagues in the Indian Journal of Dermatology, Venereology and Leprology in June, looking at 40 cases and 40 controls. In other words, 40 patients with premature graying and 40 controls. And we'll see an increased risk of blood pressure, metabolic high blood pressure, high uh, CRP levels, increased IL-6 levels, and increased features of metabolic syndrome in patients with early graying or premature graying. And we'll dive into the literature of premature graying, a really a fascinating subject area that we don't spend a lot of time on, but I think we should spend some time today. So these are the six studies we're going to talk about. I thank you again for joining me. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then by talking about oral minoxidil in adolescence. A study by John and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, July 2022 online, addresses the third good study series of oral minoxidil in pediatric patients. So we'll take a look at the first two again, and we'll take a look at this study by John and colleagues. So I think if you're going to use oral minoxidil in pediatric patients, you need to understand Jurgen and colleagues' study in the BJD in 2021, and you need to understand the very nice study by Nicholas Ruanis in JAD in April 2022. We spoke about these on earlier episodes, but we'll take a look today again at these two studies, and then we'll take a look at the new study. So Jurgen and colleagues published this nice study in 2021 of eight children using oral minoxidil for loose antigen hair syndrome. And these children had either failed topical minoxidil or for other various reasons they couldn't use it, and they started oral minoxidil. The dose of oral minoxidil in these pediatric patients under the age of 10 was about 0.02 milligrams per kilogram. Patients were screened for any cardiac problems, and then they had their heart rate and blood pressure monitored for one to three months. And the key point in the Jurgen et al. study is that these eight young pediatric patients did great on oral minoxidil. There was eight girls in the study. This was a study of loose antigen hair syndrome, which often affects female patients. The age range was two to ten. One was age two. One was age three, one was age four, and the remainder were six, seven, 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 and ten. So these are young patients. A nice series of, you know, three patients being four or under. The mean dose was 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. That works out to about 0.25 milligrams for a seven-year-old. So they are getting the oral minoxidil compounded. That's the only way you can obtain these really low doses. Seven patients had an improvement in density in their loose antigen hair syndrome, and all patients had a reduction in shedding. But here's the key point of that paper. There were minimum si minimal side effects. One out of eight patients had hypertrichosis on the legs, but none of the eight patients had tachycardia or breathing issues or weight gain from fluid retention. So the study points that 
0.01 milligrams per kilogram, or even starting 0.005 milligrams per kilogram, is pretty reasonable in these pediatric patients. And as I mentioned, for a typical 7-year-old that weighs 25 kilograms, that's about 0.125 milligrams or 0.25 milligrams to start. And so if you're going to use oral minoxidil in very small children, you're not going to be able to ask the pharmacist to give mom and dad the pre-made 2.5 milligram pills or the 5 milligram pills in some parts of Europe or the 10 milligram pills in other parts of the world. You're going to have to find a compounding pharmacy to make up these tiny doses for your tiny patients. But if you can find a good compounding pharmacy, the key message here is that small children can tolerate it fairly well. So Jurgen and colleagues was a study of eight females with loose antigen hair syndrome under the age of 10. Nicholas Roanis was a study in JAD in April, which we reviewed earlier, which was a study of 10-year-olds to 17-year-olds. This was a study of 45 patients. 87% had androgenetic hair loss. 13% had telogen effluvium. And in 31% of these patients, or 14 patients, low-dose oral minoxidil was the only treatment. And in the other 69% of patients, there were other treatments on board as well. The dose of oral minoxidil was a mean dose of 0.63 milligrams in females, 2.35 milligrams in males. And the authors point out that most patients started with 0.5 milligrams and then increased from there. And I think that's really important information to be aware of, as we'll see in just a minute. Once we get above the age of 10, we can use a little bit more standard dosing, when you're dealing with a two-year-old and a four-year-old and a six-year-old, you're going to need to compound pretty precise doses. But in the Nicholas Ruanis publication, 80% of children had an improvement, 20% stabilized, and follow-up was pretty decent from three to 24 months. 25% of patients had some kind of side effect. Hypertrichosis was the most common side effect in 18%. Shedding was present in 4%. Hypotension in 2%. Adverse effects were pretty mild, 25% overall having some sort of side effect, but none of these side effects prompted patients to stop. So now we talk about John and colleagues, which was a study by Dr. Sinclair's group in Australia in the JAD in 2022, the third of these pediatric oral minoxidil studies. So I think if you're going to be prescribing oral minoxidil to children or adolescents, you should review Jurgen and colleagues. You should review the Nicholas Rowanus study and the John et al. study. So the John et al. study is a study of safety. It's not a study of efficacy, but it's a study asking, how safe is this? And it's a study of 192 patients. So the largest study so far, Jurgen was eight, 45 patients, 
was the Nicholas Ruanis study, and now we have 192 patients in the John et al. study. So it's a study of adolescents between 13 and 18 years. They were studied over 20 years of observation using either low-dose oral minoxidil or sublingual minoxidil for a period of at least three months. And the authors looked at side effects as well as various outcomes with these patients. And again, this study by John et al. is a study of safety and tolerability, not effectiveness. So it was 192 patients, 80 males, 112 females, 101 of those patients had androgenetic hair loss, 91 had alopecia areata, or totalis. 160 patients received oral minoxidil, 32 received sublingual minoxidil. So Dr. Sinclair's group have been studying quite intensively sublingual minoxidil. It has greater bioavailability than oral minoxidil. The mean age at presentation was about 16 years, but again, a study of 13 to 18-year-olds. Some patients used other medications. Again, this was a study of patients using oral minoxidil or sublingual minoxidil for either alopecia areata or androgenetic hair loss. So the alopecia areata patients were also on prednisone, methotrexate, azathioprine, baricitinib, tofacitinib, cyclosporin. Patients with androgenetic hair loss were receiving various treatments, including spironolactone, finasteride, bicalutamide, flutamide, and ciproterone. The mean duration of treatment was about 20 months, and the mean starting dose was about 0.4 milligrams per day. The mean dose at the end of the study was about 1 milligram per day, so the dose was increased according to patient tolerability. But most patients in this study received either 0.5 milligrams or 1 milligram. 34% of patients had side effects. Hypertrichosis was the most common side effect present in 11% of patients. In the Nicholas Ruanis study, hypertrichosis was the most common side effect as well. Postural hypotension was present in 8.3% of patients, nausea in 3.1% of patients, headaches in 3.1% of patients, and tachycardia in 2.6% of patients. So these studies are really important, that side effects are generally uncommon causes of discontinuation, but side effects can occur. And here in the John et al. study, one-third of patients have some sort of side effect. And so if you're going to tell your pediatric patients and their parents that oral minoxidil is without side effect, it'll, it'll be completely fine, you're going to have a lot of parents losing your trust. But if you tell parents that there might be some kind of mild side effect, but it won't prompt us to stop therapy, then you'll retain the trust of your parents for this valuable treatment. And again, in this John et al. study, symptoms were mild and they didn't lead to anyone stopping similar to the Nicholas Ruanis study, none of the patients needed to stop. So, an interesting study, the third pediatric patient age group study of oral minoxidil that I think you should be aware of. Georgian et al. being number one, Nicholas Ruanis being number two, and here John et al. being number three. We don't know 
about shedding in this study by John et al. It was quoted at 4% in the Nicholas Ruana study, but we don't know about shedding in this study. So here we have these three good studies that I think you should be aware of. Hypertrichosis is the most common, and it occurs in all age groups, and it's followed by other issues like hypotension in a small percentage, nausea and headaches can occur, palpitations can occur, and perhaps shedding when you start. But anywhere from 25 to 34% of pediatric patients are going to have some kind of side effect with oral minoxidil. And it might be less common in the very small children, age 2 to 10, but these are small studies, so we don't know that for sure. So for oral minoxidil in adolescents, let's take a look at hair fibers. Hair fibers are these keratin-based products, for the most part, that are sprinkled on the scalp, and they bind with electrostatic forces to the hair, and they camouflage hair loss. And they go by lots of different names. They are used by patients, sometimes with hairspray to hold them down, but they don't need to be. Topic, Kabuki, Boom Boom, Nanogen. There's about 30 of these on the market, and companies can even make them up for a clinic so that you can call them whatever you want. The Jeff Topical Hair Fiber Series. And so there are probably 800 of these hair fibers on the market, but they're all very similar. There are slight differences. So a very nice study in the International Journal of Trichology in the May-June issue looked at patient satisfaction with these topical hair fibers. So these hair fibers are positively charged and they bind to the negatively charged vellus hairs on the scalp. So via these electrostatic forces, they cling on to these hairs. And this is a study available free online, so do check it out in the International Journal of Trichology in the May-June issue. And the authors have some very nice pictures in that report of the scalp coverage which occurs with these fibers. And the thing to advise patients that are using fibers is you might not like them how they go on the first time, but keep practicing because your enjoyment and satisfaction may improve over time. And many patients in my practice are very pleased with these fibers, and they are an important part of camouflaging hair loss. Some patients absolutely love them, not everyone, as we'll see in just a minute. So the benefits of these fibers are pretty clear. They reduce the appearance of hair loss, and by doing so, make it look as though the patient has more hair density. They can be immediately washed out with shampoo. So before we go into this study in the International Journal of Trichology, let's back up and look at some fundamental studies in the literature looking at these hair fibers. Ring and Keller published a nice study in the JAD in 2017 looking at the psychologic well-being of various types of camouflage. And they showed that various scalp camouflaging agents can have a positive effect on patients. 
They surveyed 359 patients on various internet sites and asked them, how much do you like using various means of scalp camouflage? And overall, 97% of patients in these internet sites had hair loss. 78% had seen a, a physician about their hair loss. 59% were using hair fibers. Hair pieces and wigs were used by about half of patients that were surveyed. And many of these patients were using various means of camouflage on a daily basis. 82% of patients said these products improved their appearance. And 71% said they, it improved their self-esteem. And so again, a reflection of how valuable these products are regarding hair fibers. Patients in that Ring and Keller study reported that it's not all positive, that these products can be messy, it takes time, they're expensive, they can cause itching, it can cause some anxiety over whether these look natural or not, and can anyone tell that these fibers are being used? And some people commented in that Ring and Keller study that these products can sometimes be removed by the wind, the rain, and swimming, and so one has to plan the day accordingly. What I really liked about that 2017 study was the authors tried to contact 20 regional dermatologists specializing in hair loss to ask them what they thought of hair fibers and these camouflaging methods in general. Only four responded, and of the four that responded, none of them recommended the products. And so we published a study in 2012 in the Dermatology Online Journal, a review of scalp camouflaging agents and prosthesis for patients with hair loss. So it was a study I published with uh, a group in Minnesota, Maria Hordinsky. And what's so fascinating about this study is that when we first submitted it to a journal, it was ultimately accepted in the Dermatology Online Journal, when we first submitted it to it to a journal, that journal said, the editor said, you know, Jeff, I don't think anybody would be interested in this paper. And so it's a nice paper. You talk about camouflaging agents. You talk about hair fibers. You talk about these pastes like Derm Match. You talk about wigs and prosthesis. It's a nice paper, but I don't think anybody would be interested in it, Jeff. And that was 2010 or 2011. And so when I see this study by Ring and Keller in 2017 that none of the four dermatologists surveyed recommended these products, and only four of the 20 even bothered to get back, it's not a surprise. I think we're better now in, 20, in 2022 than we were in 2010. I think we're better in 2022 than 2017 because the companies are marketing to patients and patients are aware of how valuable these are and patients are teaching their hair specialists and hairstylists are teaching the patients about these products and patients are teaching their clinicians. But I think we still have a long way to go. But I wasn't surprised to see that that was the number of clinicians that chose to respond. So let's take a look at this study by Babajuni in the International Journal of Trichology. Here, the authors set out to evaluate patient experience and satisfaction with the use of hair fibers. And here they use the topic, hair fibers. That was the brand. Patients were able to match their hair color to any of the 10 shades that topic provides. 
After 90 days of using the fibers, patients were asked to complete various surveys. The authors recruited 40 subjects, 20 men, 20 women. 92% of patients were satisfied that the topic brand they chose matched their hair color. They found the fibers generally easy to use. 85% said it took less than five minutes to apply. Most patients were satisfied with these fibers. They found them easy to use, washed off easily, camouflaged hair loss. On a scale of one to five, with one being not satisfied and five being very satisfied, most patients rated these fibers in various categories, which we'll take a look at in a minute, anywhere from 4.3 to 4.6. But not everyone liked these fibers. This study, again, is free online, so do take a look at it. The patients were asked, did you find it easy to use? Did it wash off easily? Was hair loss less noticeable? Did it meet your expectations? Did you feel that your appearance approved? Did you feel more confident? Would you keep using it? Would you recommend it to a friend? What was your overall rating? And the mean scores here were around 4.3 to 4.6. But when you look at actually the range, it ranged from 1 to 5 in a lot of these categories. Some were 2 to 5, indicating that some patients really didn't like these products, but a lot of patients did. So I think that's the main message. But I think if you read this paper and you think, wow, the scores are pretty good, 4.3, 4.6, that's high satisfaction, you get the impression that these are wonderful products. Most patients think they're wonderful products, but not everyone does. And I think that's an important message of this paper, is that it's valuable to encourage patients to try them. But some patients are going to tell you, I don't like these products. And that's okay, they don't have to use them. But I think it's important to have that open mind when you recommend these products, that not everyone likes them. And on a seven-point scale, looking at hair fullness, coverage, self-confidence and how attractive patients feel, most patients gave it a pretty good score. Gave it a score of six in hair fullness, six in attractiveness, six in confidence, with seven being that it greatly increased these parameters and zero being that it greatly decreased these parameters. Physicians found that inflammation was present in very few patients, One in 40 were thought to have some sort of inflammation or irritation from these fibers. That's 2.5%. So overall, the conclusion of this study, which is a very unique study, I really liked this study, is that most patients like these fibers. They feel better about themselves when they use these fibers. Not everyone likes them. One in 40 might get some kind of irritation, but overall they're pretty safe. Hair fibers have the potential to change appearance, and we have data that it has the potential to impact self-esteem. And so, thereby, we have evidence that quality of life can be improved by the use of these hair fibers. So I really like this study. I I commend the authors for, for really looking at this data. And so I think that Recommending hair fibers makes a lot of sense to patients with early thinning. These hair fibers are pretty easy to use. And I often recommend patients to try it. If you don't like it, it's okay. But try it. Don't use it once and then make your assessment on whether you like fibers. Use it twice, three times, four times, 
Try it again. Try it with hairspray, without hairspray. For a lot of patients, these fibers are life-changing. So from hair fibers, let's move on to talk about a really important subject, and that's the use of hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy. A nice study by Reynolds and colleagues in the journal Rheumatology in June 2022 looks at the use of hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy. As we'll see in a minute, most of the data looking at hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy deals with women with systemic lupus erythematosus who are using various immunosuppressants. So let's take a look at this important data. It's important for us as hair specialists to know this data well. Patients with scarring alopecia of childbearing age are going to ask us, can I use hydroxychloroquine in my pregnancy or not? So what do we tell them? There are no studies of hydroxychloroquine use in women with scarring alopecia in pregnancy that we can go on. So we have to know the lupus literature well. So does our 28-year-old woman with lichen plano pilaris need to stop hydroxychloroquine? Does our 34-year-old woman with frontal fibrosing alopecia who's stable with hydroxychloroquine need to stop? Does our patient with hydroxychloroquine use need to adjust their dose? Does a patient who has newly diagnosed scarring alopecia and wants to become pregnant next year need to not use this treatment? So let's take a look at this literature. So several meta-analyses have suggested that hydroxychloroquine does not increase the risk of fetal abnormalities. This recent study by Reynolds in rheumatology set out to retrospectively determine the outcomes of children born to mums with lupus using hydroxychloroquine or mums using azathioprine, Imuran, during pregnancy. So the study included women diagnosed with lupus attending UK lupus clinics. Children were born to mothers diagnosed with lupus were the exclusive group in this study. The authors analyzed 284 live births. 59% of pregnancies were those using prednisone. Hydroxychloroquine was used in 52.7% of pregnancies in this study. Azathioprine was used in 30.4% of pregnancies. There was a mean follow-up of about 3.23 years. Overall, about 60.4% of children were exposed to hydroxychloroquine, 30 1% were exposed to azathioprine. Here's the important point in this study. There was no significant differences between the frequencies of congenital malformations or interuterine growth restriction between children exposed to hydroxychloroquine or azathioprine. Children that were exposed to azathioprine did have an increased incidence of childhood infections that required hospital management. It's not clear the significance of that data, but that was something that was restricted to children receiving uh, azathioprine during their mother's pregnancy. So overall, the study didn't find any association between hydroxychloroquine use and azathioprine use during pregnancy and intrauterine growth restriction, congenital abnormalities, preterm births, nor preeclampsia, lupus rashes, or congenital heart block. Those did not differ between hydroxychloroquine and azathioprine during pregnancy. 
So all in all, these authors concluded that there were no significant negative outcomes in children exposed to hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy, and they concluded that hydroxychloroquine was compatible with pregnancy and breastfeeding. So is hydroxychloroquine safe for mothers who wish to become pregnant and have scarring alopecia? Well, studies of scarring alopecia are non-existent, so we have to look at the lupus literature. Why do we study this in general? Well, hydroxychloroquine crosses the placenta. It inhibits cell division and DNA synthesis, and thereby hydroxychloroquine could at least theoretically have effects on the rapidly dividing embryonic cells. Data to date largely suggests that doesn't have these kind of effects that we're worried about. But again, this data comes from studies of lupus. Immunosuppressive agents are commonly used by women with systemic lupus during pregnancy to optimize the outcome for mothers and children. And in fact, it's often the recommendation that women with lupus use these types of immunosuppressants during pregnancy. Women that use hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy have lower disease activity, they have lower risk of flares, and they have lower need for prednisone at the end of pregnancy than those who stop hydroxychloroquine. And so various groups and authorities recommend hydroxychloroquine use for women with lupus during pregnancy, as opposed to not recommending use. And so a very important study by Sperber and colleagues in Pediatric Rheumatology Online in 2009 is important to know because it is a systematic review. It set out to compare the incidence of congenital defects, spontaneous abortions, live births, fetal deaths, prematurity in women with autoimmune diseases using hydroxychloroquine during pregnancies, it was a systematic review. It analyzed all clinical trials from, two, from 1980 to 2007. They looked at congenital defects, live births, spontaneous abortions, fetal deaths, premature births, and they didn't find an increased risk in any of those categories in cases using hydroxychloroquine compared to controls not using hydroxychloroquine and all the confidence intervals crossed one, indicating there doesn't appear to be an increased risk in using hydroxychloroquine. Kaplan and colleagues in the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology in 2016 was a second systematic review. They looked at all the studies from up to 2014, including seven cohort studies and one randomized control trial. They compared 800 hydroxychloroquine-exposed pregnancies and 1,130 pregnancies that didn't receive hydroxychloroquine. They looked at congenital abnormalities, craniofacial abnormalities, genitourinary abnormalities, CNS abnormalities, stillbirths, low birth weight babies, prematurities, and spontaneous abortions. For the first categories, they didn't find any increased risks in mothers using hydroxychloroquine compared to those not using hydroxychloroquine. There was an increased risk of spontaneous abortions in mothers using hydroxychloroquine. 
The authors wondered whether this was a reflection of disease activity and a confounding as opposed to a true risk, but there was nevertheless a risk of spontaneous abortions. Closey and colleagues was the third systematic review to mention, and this was another meta-analysis of 668 pregnancies, 63% of those using hydroxychloroquine during the pregnancy. Compared to pregnancies without hydroxychloroquine, those using hydroxychloroquine had a lower odds of active lupus, but no difference in fetal loss, preterm delivery, or preeclampsia. And so, again, speaking to the good safety of hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy in that third systematic review, and no harm. Again, very important data of these three systematic reviews, speaking to the generally good safety of hydroxychloroquine in lupus. And various societies, including the American College of Rheumatology, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the British Rheumatology Society, the ULAR group, have published recommendations that women with lupus should consider some of these immunosuppressants, such as hydroxychloroquine, to reduce the incidence of flares in pregnancy and to improve outcomes of pregnancy. And so these authority bodies have said that there is generally good safety to consider, if needed, azathioprine, oral steroids, hydroxychloroquine, tacrolimus, sulfasalazine, and TNF inhibitors in pregnancy if they're needed. We need to steer clear of methotrexate mycophenolate, as these are not safe. And generally, we steer clear of cyclosporin because it may increase the risk of hypertension and preeclampsia. But we have immunosuppressants for patients with lupus. And as hair specialists with patients with various autoimmune hair loss conditions, we need to borrow some of these immunosuppressants and we need to look at this data in order to inform our patients about what to do if we need to use immunosuppressants. But there is one study to know about, and that's the Hubrecht study of 2021, which was a large study of 2,045 pregnancies exposed to hydroxychloroquine compared to 3 million pregnancies not exposed to hydroxychloroquine. The Hubrecht et al. study suggested that perhaps hydroxychloroquine isn't quite as safe as we think, even though it may be pretty safe. And it's important to know about this Hubrecht et al. study because it's not going anywhere, and we need to know about it. It was a study in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It created a lot of controversy, and we need to know about it. It was a study, a population-based cohort study using insurance claim data. It studied 2,000 hydroxychloroquine-exposed pregnancies and compared it to 3 million pregnancies that were not exposed to hydroxychloroquine. The authors reported a 1.26 relative risk of major malformations in users of hydroxychloroquine. There was no particular type of abnormality or anomaly that was found, but there was an increased risk of congenital anomalies. The odds ratio was 1.26 overall. The confidence interval did not cross 1. It was 1.04 to 1.54. 
But an important point in the paper was that when you looked at women receiving doses of 400 milligrams or more, the risk was 1.33, with a confidence interval 1.08 to 1.65. But when you looked at women receiving less than 400 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine, there did not seem to be that same increased risk of congenital anomalies. The odds ratio was 0.95, and the confidence interval crossed 1. It was 0.6 to 1.5. So I think that's really important data. This Hugh Brexit L study has received a lot of attention. It appears that higher doses may have more relevance in causing congenital anomalies compared to lower doses. These authors, which was a very well-designed study, these authors continue to be of the view that a lot of these past studies that serve the basis for these systematic reviews that I reviewed with you, systematic review one, two, and three, are based on really small studies, anywhere from 36 to 194 patients exposed to hydroxychloroquine. And with such small studies, it's hard to, to really detect small differences if truly they occur. And in another very nice study, uh, it's a commentary in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in May, the authors again def defend their paper, saying that they can't dismiss the potential for a small increased risk of congenital anomalies. And, as you can expect, the papers received controversy. In the rheumatology field, it received a lot of controversy because even though there may be a very small increased risk at high doses, hydroxychloroquine use in lupus is very important because it reduces the risk of flares, it can even save lives, and it can dramatically increase the risk of, um, decrease the risk of babies being born with, with problems. It can decrease the risk of preeclampsia. It can decrease the risk of severe outcomes. And so in patients with lupus, even though it's controversial in this Hubrex study, hydroxychloroquine and other immunosuppressants are necessary for, to improve outcomes for mothers. It can be very serious outcomes. The reason the paper is important to us is because we don't think that patients with scarring alopecia that are going to consider immunosuppressants in pregnancy, have those same negative fetal outcomes. We don't know because those studies haven't been done. But we have ongoing studies looking at these issues of hydroxychloroquine safety in pregnancy, and you're going to see them in the literature. Maybe someday there'll be a study looking at hydroxychloroquine in scarring alopecia. But stay tuned for these studies. Berard et al. had a study, 2021 August, no, no clear increased risk of premature birth, low birth weights, major congenital malformations in women using hydroxychloroquine compared to not using hydroxychloroquine, but it was just a study of 288 patients. Another study in 2021 of Howley and colleagues, no increased risk of birth defects in users of hydroxychloroquine compared to women that don't use hydroxychloroquine but it was a study of 20 women using hydroxychloroquine. Another study in 2021 by Anderson and colleagues, no increased risk of major birth defects, premature births, or small for gestation, gestational age babies. 
in women using hydroxychloroquine compared to not using hydroxychloroquine, but a study of 303 women using hydroxychloroquine compared to controls. So ongoing studies that suggest good safety, but small studies. The Hubrex et al. study was a study of 2,045 pregnancies. So stay tuned. This is an ongoing study. The Hubrex et al. study is with us. And we need to know it well. We need to know the systematic reviews. We need to know the data. It appears that the risk may be at higher doses, but we may not be able to say that hydroxychloroquine use in pregnancy is without any risk. If we're going to use it, perhaps we should be using small doses. I'd like to just mention that I do care for patients with scarring alopecia during pregnancy. What is my own view? My own view is that if we have to use hydroxychloroquine, we can use it. But let's try not to use it. But if we need to use it, let's keep it to 200 milligrams three times a week. And let's try to start it in the second trimester if we need to start it. But generally speaking, I feel that in many pregnancies that I care for women with scarring alopecia, we don't need to use it. That generally scarring alopecia can be quiet in many patients. But if we need to use something, we can use beta-methadone lotion a few times per week. We can use anti-dandruff shampoos like zinc pyrithione-based shampoos to keep seborrheic dermatitis away. We can use low-level laser therapy devices to suppress inflammation in scarring alopecia. If we need to, we can increase the dose of beta-methasone. We can even occasionally use clobetazole. We can use antihistamines in pregnancy, provided the obstetric gynecology colleagues feel it's okay. But many of these have the old pregnancy class B. So I will use cetirizine occasionally in pregnancy. If we need to, we'll increase clobetazole. I don't use steroid injections in pregnancy. But if we need to, from there, we can use more clobetazole, or start hydroxychloroquine three times a week, or use small amounts of tacrolimus, protopic. So that's my approach to caring for patients with scarring alopecia during pregnancy. I'm not opposed to using hydroxychloroquine if we need to. I think we need to use the lowest possible dose. I try not to use it if we don't have to. I think we should know those three systematic reviews. I think we should understand well the Hubrex et al. study. So let's move on now to talk about hair loss with multiple sclerosis, disease-modifying drugs, and a nice study by Porwell and colleagues in the Journal of Central Nervous System Diseases in June 2022. Multiple sclerosis medications and treatments have come a long, long way over the last 10 to 15 years. And obviously it's not an area of medicine that I follow daily, but certainly it's, it's a fascinating field. And we do see patients in the hair loss clinic who have multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis is not uncommon. And so we see patients with medication-induced hair loss. We have seen patients with various issues. But multiple sclerosis is a disease which damages myelin, which is this blanket that protects nerves and on account of this, it can present with various neurologic symptoms. Numbness, tingling, mood changes, fatigue, memory issues, blindness, weakness. And there's now about 20 disease-modifying therapies, or DMTs, that are available to treat MS. 
These disease-modifying therapies target some component of the inflammatory process of MS. Either they reduce the chances of relapses, they reduce the number of new lesions on MRI, or they slow down the progression, progressive accumulation of disability. We used to have steroids, then various interferons, and now we have this accumulating array of treatments that are available for patients with MS. And there have been reports of hair loss in some of these disease-modifying therapies, or DMTs. The drug teriflunamide has been intensively studied in hair loss, so I think it's important to know about teriflunamide, as well as some of the other DMTs. But let's back up and talk about an important study by Travis and colleagues in 2018, titled Observational Evaluation of Hair Thinning in Patients with Multiple Sclerosis Receiving Teriflunamide. Is it an issue in clinical practice? So teriflunamide is marketed under Obagio. It was FDA approved in 2012, 10 years ago, for relapsing types of multiple sclerosis. Clinical trial data suggested that hair loss can occur in 10 to 15% of patients receiving teriflunamide, compared to about 5% receiving placebo. Other studies have suggested that hair shedding can occur early on with teriflunamide, but then it seems to stabilize. For example, one study suggested that hair shedding can occur in about 6% of patients in the first four weeks, then by three months it decreases to 3%, and then by about 24 weeks it's about 1% or less. But it's certainly not clear in all studies if that is the norm. Do we expect that by 24 weeks that less than 1% of our patients are going to have any kind of concern? So Travis and colleagues examined the issue of hair loss with teriflunamide. The authors invited patients to complete questionnaires at their first visit and then again at a follow-up visit. Healthcare practitioners also completed questionnaires. There were 38 patients in this study. 97% of patients were women. 87% did not have hair loss prior to hair thinning. The mean time to onset of hair loss with teriflunamide was 77 days, 11 weeks. Healthcare practitioners classified the hair loss as mild in 63% of patients, moderate in 34%, and severe in 3%. And again, these are all patients that had some kind of hair loss with teriflunamide. But about a third of patients had moderate to severe hair loss. Patients rated the severity of their hair loss as 5, uh, on a, with 0 being minimal and 10 being severe. Here's the important point of that Travis et al. 2018 study, and that is that at the follow-up time interval, only 37% of patients said they had complete resolution of their hair loss issue. 42% of patients said they still had some kind of ongoing hair loss. 18% said they were somewhat improved. And 3% they had said they had no improvement. So we have a large proportion of patients at follow-up. And again, in this study, we don't really know when that is. But not everyone with hair issues from teriflunamide is going to feel that their hair loss issues are done. 
Healthcare practitioners said that about one in five patients at a follow-up visit still had moderate thinning. So the key message in that study to me is that not everybody with teriflunamide felt that the issues are gone and done. If we believe prior literature, we believe that over time these issues should resolve, but I don't think we know that for sure. I don't think we have enough good data long-term in terms of what happens long-term to patients on teriflunamide and all these disease-modifying therapies. Because again, many patients need to continue these therapies. So Porwell et al. was a study in the Journal of Central Nervous System Diseases in June 2022, looking at hair loss with these disease-modifying therapies. The authors dove into these various databases, including the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System, F-A-E-R-S, a very popular database of side effects, as well as the Open FDA database, to look at the incidence of hair loss and the reports of hair loss between January 2009 and June 2020. And they looked here at FDA-approved drugs for MS when they looked into the database. So these are databases whereby patients or doctors submit side effects from drugs to this large database. There was 8,759 hair loss reports in this database amongst 44,000 dermatologic side effects. Most reports were submitted by patients, 78%, but the rest came from doctors. So with all these MS drugs, teriflunamide was at the top, with 42% of all these hair loss reports with MS drugs coming from teriflunamide. Dimethyl fumarate was 19%, and then we have the rest from these various other medications. So all in all, when, you, when these authors looked at these database entries, there was an increased odds ratio for teriflunamide, about 18 fold increased risk compared to other drugs with teriflunamide in women. Azemtuzumab had a 1.43-fold increased risk. Dimethylfumarate had a 1.26-fold increased risk. Ocrelizumab had a 1.28-fold increased risk in women. And in males, there was just an increased risk of teriflutamide. Again, these databases can, with MS drugs can larger number of female entries generally than males. But the key point in this paper was that there was an 18-fold increased risk of hair loss with teriflunamide in women compared to other drugs and a 25-fold increased risk in males. So there was this disproportionate reporting of hair loss with teriflunamide in both male and females. Azimtuzumab may have an increased risk Dimethylfumarate may have an increased risk in women. Ocrelizumab may have an increased risk in women. But the risk is particularly increased with this teriflunamide medication. So I think that's important medication to know about. I think it's important for us to have an appreciation for this array of disease-modifying therapies with MS, the potential for some of them to cause hair loss, but particularly teriflunamide. We don't really know the long-term 
with teriflunamide. We think that a lot of patients improve over time, but we don't have great data. So we move now to a very interesting study by Jiang and Warshaw in Dermatitis in June 2022 called Hair Care Product Hacks, Do-It-Yourself Alternatives. I really like this study. Dr. Warshaw is a dermatologist who is an allergic contact dermatitis expert in Minnesota. And the authors published a very nice article looking at do-it-yourself cosmetic products at home. You know, our patients in our practice have, have taught us how to make shampoos and conditioners based on products they learn on the internet. So there's a lot of these reports on the internet about how to make shampoos, how to make conditioners, how to make hairsprays, how to make gels, how to use all these products. And patients have taught us over the years. What hasn't been clear to me is, do my colleagues endorse these? And what do, what do colleagues think about these? And, you know, how safe are these? So to have Dr. Warshaw, a well-respected allergic contact dermatitis specialist, publish some of these recipes online really gives a lot of credibility to these do-it-yourself products. And so we have our do-it-yourself recipes online from our patients, and we've put some of Dr. Warshaw's recipes with these on our donovanmedical.com forward slash DIY on our website. And you can certainly check it out and check out the paper by Dr. Warshaw, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But let's back up to talk about some important studies in the allergic contact dermatitis literature. A study by Zerwas in Dermatitis in 2009 really summarized the reports of allergic contact dermatitis with shampoos. Zerwas and Monich pointed out in that 2009 study that the most common allergen in shampoos is fragrance. That's found in 95% of shampoos, followed by the wonderful sudsing agent cocamidopropobetaine, followed by preservatives MCIMI, followed by formaldehyde releasers, and about half of patients followed by propylene glycol. Talfik and colleagues in Dermatitis published a nice report in 2021 reminding us that fragrance is found in most shampoos, most conditioners, most hairstyling products. And it's hard to get away from fragrance. And that Talfik et al. report taught us that when you look at the allergic contact dermatitis database, this CAMP database that some dermatologists can purchase a subscription to, only 6% of shampoos, 4% of conditioners, 6% of hairstyling treatments, and 9% of dry shampoos are fragrance-free. And so it's pretty hard to find fragrance-free products. And so Dr. Warshaw, along with Jiang, in this publication in Dermatitis, set out to provide us with some do-it-yourself products that are allergen-free, or at least low allergen. And um, Dr. Warshaw published these recipes. And... Very nice report, which gives credibility to a lot of these recipes online. And 
Our handout has been online, donovanmedical.com forward slash DIY for do-it-yourself. Dr. Warshaw reminds us that you can make a shampoo by mixing half a cup of Castile soap, half a cup of water, and there you have a nice do-it-yourself shampoo. Our patients have recommended this for quite some time, and I actually made this up many years ago. It's, it, they're really fascinating products. If you take half a cup of Dr. Bronner's shampoo and half a cup of water and you make it up in a bottle, you get this very runny, runny product that looks like water. And if you put it in a clear bottle and you pour it on your palm, you first think to yourself, how is this ever going to do anything? And you put one or two drops in your palm and then you lather it in your scalp. And you come to realize what it means when someone says a little goes a long way. Two drops of this product in your hand lathers incredibly well. And so if you want to make your own do-it-yourself shampoo, go ahead and, and use half a cup of Dr. Bronner's soap shampoo with half a cup of Castile, uh, half a cup of water, and you'll see what, what I mean. And so Dr. Warshaw endorses this product in her paper, and I think it's nice to see that because I've wondered about this product and does anybody use this? Does anybody recommend this? Patients love it, and patients in the do-it-yourself world online know Castile soap. And so I think, as a hair specialist, you should know about this recipe. It's very easy to make. You should know about Castile soap. There's do-it-yourself conditioners where you can use cocoa butter and coconut oil with jojoba oil, add aloe vera, add some essential oils, and you have, voila, a do-it-yourself conditioner. Dr. Warshaw reminds us in her paper that you can use some coconut oil. Let it melt in your palm of your hands and uh, apply it to some dry or damp ends, and there you have a conditioner. Patients have taught us that you can use aloe vera gel with, in water with uh, coconut oil or apple cider vinegar, and you can make up a hair spray. You can make up a hair gel with gelatin. Dr. Warshaw reminds us that you can use chia seeds or flax seeds, soak them overnight, strain them, and make a, a similar product for a hair gel. And so this very nice paper in Dermatitis gives credibility to these products that patients have been talking about for a long, long time. And that, um, you know, we have our handout, but I, I like our handout even more now. If there's a name that you trust in the American, in the Allergic contact dermatitis literature, it's, it's Dr. Warshaw, uh, as well as other colleagues, of course. But um, I really like this paper in, in Dermatitis by Jiang and Warshaw. And do check it out and, and do check out our handout as well. And, and go ahead and try to make up some of these products yourself to get a sense of what patients are talking about. I've made up many of these products in the past and it takes a little practice sometimes, but it's fun to make up. And uh, you'll be surprised at uh, Castile uh, soap with water and just how fascinating of a product that is and how two drops lather incredibly well. And um, do check it out and do check out the paper in dermatitis. So finally, we move to a study looking at premature canities. What a, what a bizarre term for premature graying of hair. 
uh, or early graying of hair. The world of dermatology really loves terms that are challenging to pronounce and challenging to know about, but canatees is one of them. It just means premature graying of hair. A nice study in June 2022 in the Indian Journal of Dermatology, Venereology, Leprology, titled Cardiovascular Risk Factors, Risk Markers in Premature Canities. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about premature graying and gray hair. It's an important subject for hair specialists to know about. It is an incredibly important subject in the hair world. The hair world spends billions upon billions of dollars fighting gray hair. And so, as hair specialists, you need to know about gray hair. There's not a week that goes by that patients don't ask, is there a new treatment for gray hair? And the answer is not really. There are treatments that are being studied, but hair dyes remain the mainstay. So when do people gray? Well, they gray according to their racial background. Caucasians tend to begin graying in the 30s. Asians tend to gray in the late 30s, and African-American individuals in the mid-40s, black individuals in the mid-40s. So it depends a little bit on one's genetics. It depends a little bit on one's racial background. It used to be said that by the age of 50, 50% 50 of the world's population has half of their hair gray. That was the 50-50-50 rule. It's recently come to be understood that mm, maybe that's a little bit overestimated. And maybe it's closer to 6 to 23% of the world has about half of their hair gray by the age of 50. So it's perhaps not 50%. But the term premature graying, or early canities, refers to hair graying that occurs before the age of 20 in Caucasians, before the age of 25 in Asian individuals, and before the age of 30 in black men and women. The early graying of hair has a really important effect on self-esteem and quality of life, and we need to know about early graying of hair quite well. The cause of gray hair may differ from patient to patient, and we don't fully understand why some patients gray early, but certainly oxidative stress is at the heart of why graying occurs. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the early graying literature. I think it's important to know about. And by doing so, we'll come to appreciate this study even better. So genetics has a very important role in premature graying, or PGH. About 39% of patients with early graying have a strong family history and so we need to ask patients when they're graying early about their family history. It comes from both sides, but it seems, at least in one study, that dad's side might have a little more important role than mom's side, but of course it comes from both sides. B12 deficiency can occur in early graying. A classic study by Dr. Dauber found that 55% of patients with pernicious anemia or low B12 had graying before the age of 50, as compared to about 30% in a control group. That's a study from 1970 in the BJD. 
Thyroid abnormalities can sometimes be found. Thyroid hormones like T3 and T4 can affect melanogenesis or pigmentation in hair. And so in addition to checking B12, it's important to check thyroid hormones. Smoking plays a role. A study that we've talked about before by Mosley and Gibbs in the British Medical Journal in 1996 taught us that smokers were not only more likely to have early androgenetic hair loss, but smokers were two to threefold more likely to have gray hair. The vitamin and mineral deficiency literature is kind of all over the place, but a recent study found a link between low iron and calcium and low zinc and low copper and low vitamin D. A study by Bott and colleagues in the Indian population found lower serum levels of iron, calcium, and vitamin D in those that were prone to premature graying of hair. But it's probably more important to look at the meta-analyses than these individual studies. And a recent meta-analysis of mineral deficiencies found that copper and calcium were the most consistently lowered minerals in those with premature graying of hair. And the data for iron and zinc really didn't seem to indicate that that was associated with premature graying of hair and that was a study in the International Journal of Dermatology by Chang and Sung. Autoimmune conditions can be associated with premature graying of hair. You need to know about alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, and vitiligo. Those can be associated with premature graying of hair. There's one particular condition that gives graying of hair quickly, and that's this overnight graying of hair that can be seen with alopecia areata, uh, the Marie Antoinette syndrome, or the Canates subita, subita. And that was this Mar Marie Antoinette syndrome, where on account of high stress the night before her execution, Marie Antoinette had this sudden graying of hair, and that can occur in a form, albeit uncommon, of alopecia areata. There can be various syndromes associated with premature graying, including premature aging syndromes like Werner's and progeria. But there's a whole host of syndromes that can give premature graying. Some drugs can give premature graying, including the chemotherapy drugs. Chloroquine can give premature graying as well. But before we look at this study from last month... I'd like to remind you about a couple of important studies about hair graying and premature graying that we really need to know about. A number of studies dating back about 25 years have looked at the relationship between graying of hair, baldness, and heart disease. Schnorr and colleagues in 1995 looked at this relationship between graying of hair, balding, other signs of aging like wrinkling and heart attacks. They analyzed data from this world-famous Copenhagen City Heart Study, which followed patients for 12 years, and they found a correlation between graying of hair, wrinkling, baldness, and heart attacks. There was especially an increased risk between complete gray hair and heart attacks compared to those without graying of hair. 
But the key point was that the graying of hair was found to be a risk factor for heart disease. There was no statistically significant risk in women, that this seemed to be a risk in men. The data overall through the years has been somewhat inconsistent, but most of it suggests that graying of hair is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Eisenstein in 1982, Gould in 1978, again reported this association between premature graying of hair and cardiovascular disease, but other studies did not, like a study by Glasser in 1991. But a study in 2015 by Agarwal found that premature graying of hair was a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease in smokers especially. Kokoman in 2012 found that the degree of premature graying of hair was an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. This was a study of 213 men undergoing coronary angiography. Paik and colleagues in 2018 published a nice cross-sectional study. This was a study from Korea that I think is important for you to know about. It was a cross-sectional study looking at associations between premature graying and metabolic risk factors. It was a study of 1,000 929 young men, 36% had premature graying. They looked at waist circumference, systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, blood sugar, and HDL cholesterol. And those with premature graying had higher waist circumference, higher systolic blood pressure, higher diastolic blood pressure, higher blood sugar, and lower HDL compared to controlled patients without premature graying. Mahendarata was a study in dermatologic therapy. It was a systematic review. They found that premature graying of hair was associated with smoking. B12 deficiency, folic acid deficiency, biotin deficiency, mineral deficiency, especially calcium and iron. Other important risk factors for premature graying of hair was family history, obesity, hypertension, lack of exercise, drugs, various genetic syndromes, dyslipidemia, thyroid disorder, hyperuricemia, and liver disorders. And they proposed that premature graying of hair was an important marker of coronary artery disease, and this was increased further in smokers. So now we come to this study by Das and colleagues in the June issue of the Indian Journal of Dermatology, Venereology, and Leprology. And I hope that background I, I provided sets the stage for this study a little bit better. The authors set out to do what many others have done, and that is to look at the cardiovascular risk factors in those with premature graying. They looked at classic risk factors like insulin resistance, blood pressure, cholesterol, but also other cardiovascular risk factors like CRP, TNF, alpha Interleukin-6. They had 40 patients with premature graying between the ages of 19 and 25 with more than five gray hairs. Again, in Caucasian individuals, the definition is less than 20 for premature graying of hairs. In those in the Indian subcontinent, the definition would be 25 and less. They performed detailed histories, they t measured blood pressure, waist circumference, weight, 
They drew blood tests to look at lipids, blood sugars, insulin, CRP, TNF, IL-6. They calculated insulin, insulin resistance. There was no difference in the ages of cases and controls. There was no difference between the proportion of males and females. The earliest age of premature graying in this study was nine years of age. The mean age of onset was 19.5. 32% had mild canities, 50% had moderate canities, and 175 had severe canities. The parietal scalp was the most common site of gray hair. The temples was the next most common in 45%. The parietal scalp was in 75%, frontal scalp in 27 and the occipital scalp in 5%. Those individuals with premature graying were more likely to have a family history of premature graying. That was found in a quarter of patients with premature graying compared to none of the controls. There's also a greater likelihood of diabetes family history. When you looked at the proportion of patients having high blood pressure, there was a greater proportion of cases with premature graying compared to controls having high blood pressure, higher systolic blood pressure, higher mean diastolic blood pressure compared to controls. There was a greater proportion of individuals with premature graying having metabolic syndrome, fasting blood sugar increases, insulin resistance, compared to those without premature graying. And when the authors looked at levels of CRP, they were greater in those with premature graying. Levels of IL-6 were not increased, but there were more individuals with premature graying overall that had high IL-6 levels compared to controls and no difference in TNF-alpha. So overall, the authors of this study found a significant association between some of these cardiovascular risk factors like high blood pressure, insulin resistance, compared to those without. A very nice study, and the authors proposed that we need to pay attention to these patients with premature graying, that perhaps we need to be assessing blood pressure. We need to be measuring cholesterol. We need to be measuring blood sugars and screening for insulin resistance. And I think that's really important. I think that's something that we need to be doing. And we need to be performing a basic workup, of course, in our patients with premature graying um, to look for any reversible issues like thyroid dysfunction and perhaps B12. But how do I evaluate patients with premature graying? Well, I think we need to do full histories and good examinations. We need to really look at family histories, family histories of premature graying, that's such an important risk factor, family history of diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Do any individuals in the family have early heart attacks, early strokes? I think that's really important. We need to perform careful examinations looking for alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, vitiligo. Smoking history is really important to ascertain. And Screen for any possible genetic syndromes. There are a lot of genetic syndromes which go with this. Some of these genetic syndromes may be clear by the time the individual comes into clinic with premature graying, but 
ask about developmental history, ask about any issues that are present with the skin, the eyes, the the joints, the development, the um, MSK, the neurologic system. You may not know all these syndromes in detail, but certainly asking about developmental history will help you to determine if any of these syndromes may be present. And then there are a number of blood tests that I routinely order in individuals with premature graying. That includes CBC, thyroid panels, ferritin, zinc, vitamin D, folic acid, copper, calcium, CRP, cholesterol, blood sugars, hemoglobin A1C, and insulin. These are all done fasting. And liver enzymes. A lot of these come back normal, of course, but these are at least some of the blood tests that have some evidence to back them up in these systematic reviews, in these other studies that suggests that it's at least possible that some of these could be abnormal in individuals with premature graying of hair. And of course, I measure blood pressure, and we ask patients about their weight and height to calculate the BMI. This is an important area that doesn't receive a lot of attention all the time, but premature graying of hair is associated with cardiovascular disease in various studies with metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, insulin resistance. There's other data out there which suggests that maybe even premature graying of hair is associated with lower bone mass, bone mineral density, and osteoporosis, that maybe it's even associated with hearing loss. So I think we need to keep an open mind and keep a good respect for this literature about premature graying of hair. And so do watch for it, but especially pay close attention to it. These individuals who come to see you about premature graying of hair are quite devastated by premature graying of hair, and it has quite significant psychologic impact on quality of life. So that's it for this week. We've talked about six very fascinating studies. We talked about oral minoxidil in adolescence and this study of 192 patients in JAD, which is the third pediatric study of oral minoxidil. And we talked about the fact that hypertrichosis is at the top of the list for side effects. We talked about hair fibers and the generally good satisfaction with patients with hair fibers and that many like them, but not all. And some patients do give them low ratings. But this study of 20 men and 20 women in the International Journal of Trichology suggested pretty good satisfaction. Maybe 3% of patients can be irritated. We talked about hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy and the systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have been done suggesting in lupus patients pretty good data about safety about good outcomes of mums that use hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy. But this study by Hubrix is suggesting that maybe, just maybe, higher doses confer an increased risk. A study by Porwell on teriflunamide published in the Journal of Central Nervous System Diseases about this 18 to 25-fold increased risk of hair loss in MS patients using teriflunamide. We talked about this body of literature about disease-modifying disease therapies with multiple sclerosis patients and this chance for hair loss. 
We talked about this nice study by Dr. Warshaw in Dermatitis about this do-it-yourself hair care, hair care products and how to use Castile soap with water and make up a highly latherable shampoo as well as other conditioners, hairsprays, hair gels, hair mousse. And do check out that study along with um, the, the handle we have online. And finally, we talked about this body of literature with hair graying, premature graying of hair, and the increased risk of metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, insulin resistance, increased CRP with individuals with premature graying of hair. And so we come back and say goodbye to our six patients in our waiting room. We talked about Brian and Kyle in room one. Brian wants to know, can oral minoxidil cause nausea in his son? Well, indeed it can. 3.1% of patients in that nice study by Dr. Sinclair had nausea. Hypertrichosis was the most common side effect of oral minoxidil in adolescence, but nausea occurred in 3%. Sandy is in room two, still waiting for us. She wants to know if hair fibers irritate. Do people like them? And why hasn't anyone recommended them? Well, a lot of people do like them. Rating scales go from 4.3 to 4.6 out of 5. But not everyone likes them. 3% of patients get irritation. And why haven't specialists recommended them to her? Well, not everyone knows about them. We reviewed a nice study by Ring and Keller from 2017 showing that zero out of four hair dermatologists put them on the recommendation list, which is unfortunate. So we need to do a better job teaching hair specialists about these fibers which dramatically change quality of life. Daria is in room three. She wants to know, can she use hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy? Will it harm her baby in any way? Well, we need to tell Daria that there's no studies of hydroxychloroquine use in scarring alopecia during pregnancy, but in lupus, it's got pretty good safety. And a lot of studies suggest pretty good safety, but we do have this one study by Hubrix et al. suggesting in high doses, 400 milligrams a day or more, that maybe there's this slight increased risk of some congenital anomalies, but that data hasn't been published in other studies that are smaller, and it hasn't come through in other systematic reviews, which suggest pretty good safety. We need to remind Daria that in women with lupus, it's a recommendation to use hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy for many of these women. And so perhaps for Daria, we can consider, if needed, topical steroids, low-level laser therapy, if we need to, clobetazole, if we need to, antihistamines, and perhaps if we need to, we can consider hydroxychloroquine at low doses. But I think we need to help Daria understand that it's kind of a challenging literature, and let's get Daria's obstetric gynecology, uh, obstetrician and gynecologist on board as well. We have Gaffey, in room four. 
He's been using teriflunamide for 16 weeks. He wants to know if it causes hair loss because he's getting shedding. Well, teriflunamide can cause a 25-fold increased risk of shedding in males and an 18-fold increased risk in females. It seems to slow down. The data is not all that great. Some patients that follow up are still feeling they don't have their hair back. And so do we need to stop? Well, maybe not yet, but I think we need to be aware that we need to follow this and it could indeed be the teriflunamide that's causing hair loss in this patient with multiple sclerosis. Susie is waiting for us in room five. She's fed up with the preservatives and fragrances in her shampoos. Can she make one up herself? Well, Susie, you can use half a cup of Castile soap and half a cup of water. Mix it up and voila, you have a shampoo, which is fragrance-free and devoid of allergens. Susie, you can check out Dr. Warshaw's study online and our handout as well at donovanmedical.com forward slash DIY for do-it-yourself products. Mark is in room six. He stepped out to have a smoke, but we're hoping to see him back anytime. He's 22 and he's devastated by his premature graying of hair, which started at 19. He wants to know what blood tests are you going to order for him to constitute a further, a thorough workup. Well, Mark, we're going to take a, a good history. We're going to perform a good exam, make sure there's no alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, vitiligo, any congenital anomalies or syndromes. We're going to ask you to stop smoking and we're going to give you as much help as we are comfortable with to help you stop smoking, but we're going to ask you to follow up with your primary care physician. If we're not comfortable with smoking cessation strategies, we really want you to stop smoking. We're going to order a CBC, TSH, ferritin, zinc, vitamin D, folic acid, copper, calcium, CRP, fasting cholesterol, A1C, glucose, insulin, and see if any of these are abnormal. And maybe we'll throw liver enzymes in there as well. So that's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for joining me for the last episode of season two of the Evidence-Based Hair podcast. We're back in September for Evidence-Based Hair season three. And season three will take us to the uh, midpoint in November. And we will oh, eagerly await the finale, which occurs in December, which is the top 20 studies of 2022. And you can check online at donovanmedical.com under webinars to see the date of the top 20 studies of 2022, which we'll talk about more when we rejoin in season three. We've reviewed a lot of wonderful studies in season one and season two. Undoubtedly, some of those are going to find their way into the grand finale. But I'll look forward to seeing you in season three. If you'd like to connect with us at any time, please do so. We welcome your comments. We welcome your feedback. We're at info at donovanhairacademy.com. We'll see you in September for season three. I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, 
Hope you have a wonderful August just the same. Thanks again.